0: Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth.
1: Hi, and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. With so much volatility in news flow recently, it's really easy to lose sight of what opportunities the future could offer us. And we're starting to get a feel for how different the last decade or perhaps the last 15 years have been and how different the future could look. Alison Savas is an investment director at Antipodes and she's of the view that the winners of the last 10 years could be quite different to those of the next decade. Alison, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Gemma. So Alison, we should know you're in the UK right now, so you're having a uh, a real time experience of this, perhaps somewhat worse than in Australia, but rising inflation and rates, they've been the key topics of the last 12 months. Prior to that, we paid very little attention to either, if I'm honest, except to talk about how low rates were. And this complete flip has changed the market's dynamic dramatically over the last 12 months. Can you talk to us through? what kinds of companies were the big winners during the low rate period, that period that may never be repeated, right? What was what was thriving and what do we see kind of in the wash up?
0: Yeah, I mean that's exactly right, Gemma. And and you know, you make a good point, you know, will that ever be repeated? Um and and you know, time will tell, but but we do think we're in, we are actually entering into quite a different regime moving forward. But but to answer, you know, to answer your question, um So what happened during that very low rate environment? So, you know, what a lower discount rate means is that future cash flows are worth more today. And that then allows you to pay a much higher multiple for those future cash flows. So what were the big winners? Well, the tech sector was a really big winner in this environment. But more specifically, it was unprofitable tech that was the biggest beneficiary. So, you know, these are businesses making very little or no cash flow or earnings today, but with this potential or possibility of a very huge payoff sometime down the track. Now, these sorts of businesses disproportionately benefited from record low rates because, you know, really for two reasons, because low rates allowed these companies to fund themselves very cheaply, while at the same time also boosting the value of their equity. So, you know, I mean, I love talking about stocks. I know you love talking about stocks. So a good example here is Snapchat. Now, um, you know, this is the messaging app, which I know many of your listeners are going to be really familiar with. This is where you can send pictures and videos that disappear after, after 24 hours, you know, basically, I would say it's every parent's nightmare, um, particularly if you have teens. Now, luckily, our kids are a bit bit younger here. But, you know, Snapchat is overlaid with ads. And look, it's an incredibly popular messaging app, um, especially in the US. So, you know, just to give, you know, the listeners uh, um, a sense of this, you know, they had 290 million daily active users in 2021, um, 350 million users at the end of last year. And at its its peak, this company was growing revenue at 50 to 100% per annum. But then the competitive landscape changed. Um, you had TikTok into the scene and it started growing very quickly. And while that's not an identical business to Snap, you know, what it did do was it started increasing that competition for eyeballs and, and share of time spent, you know, how we spend our time on handsets and tablets. And, you know, Snapchat really started taking a lot of that time and, and that share of eyeballs, particularly in the U.S., and as a result of that, the ad spending on TikTok really started to accelerate. So despite that change in the competitive environment, the market was still prepared to pay 25 times snaps for revenue. This company didn't have earnings. It was priced at 25 times the revenue. Now, of course, you know, fast forward to today, we know what's happened with TikTok and that competitive landscape, and today that stock is only priced at three times revenue. So, you know, you've got a company that went from being, you know, a share price that was $80 per share to today now being only $11 a share. So what happened to Snap isn't new news, but I think it is a really good example of what low interest rates did to the investment environment. You know, Snap was an example of a fast-growing industry and zero interest rates attracted a lot of capital, which attracts a lot of competition that competition hit that company, you know, it hit Snap's growth rates. Um, And then now on top of that, we've had high interest rates and that's meaningfully reduced today's value of Snap's future cash flows. And, you know, you can see that end result was, you know, really substantial derating. It's such a
1: great example and I'm sure you, among others, it's been such a weird time perhaps not so much recently, but, you know, for a decade before that going, why Why are we paying so much for these companies? They couldn't possibly ever become profitable enough to justify some of the multiples people were paying. And yet there have been some companies, just a handful, right, but they have they've gone from that profitless growth to very, very profitable growth and sort of come out the other side. Do you
0: think those will continue to hold up? Look, I think, you know, you're right, Gemma, like you've got to be selective. You know, there will be those gems that do transition. They make that transition to, you know, really strong businesses. And even though the multiple may be high today, if you can pick those winners that do make that transition very successfully and you you are prepared to have a, you know, a three to five year or really a bit of a longer term investment horizon. You can see those growth rates increasing, but those valuations falling down the track. And so we absolutely do think that there is a place for that sort of business um, in, a, in a pragmatic value portfolio, which is, which is our investment philosophy. Um, look, I think, you know, what we've seen, we have seen a bit of a reversal in this trend. So if we take a step back, you know, we had this massive derating rating in particularly in unprofitable tech last year. You know, that was what really played out in 2022, and we have seen a bit of a reversal in the last couple of months where, where big cap tech has outperformed. And, and, look, I think there are a few factors at play here. Um, you know, the first is, look, you know, you, you touched on it in your intro. We've got these concerns over, um, you know, these pretty big concerns over instability in the US banking system and, you know, what that might mean. And, and you know, we've seen the market start to, to price in Fed rate cuts. And the market is also showing a preference for defensive businesses with strong balance sheets and strong and predictable cash flows. So, you know, these are stocks. Um, you know, stocks with these types of characteristics can be a really good hiding place in term, in during times of uncertainty. So I think, you know, across the tech space, you know, what you've really got to, um, I think what the key issue is, and really this is across any sector, isn't it, you've just got to, you've got to be very selective about what you own and, and really own businesses that are, you know, a, a, you know, a good quality businesses with strong moats and are available on attractive multiples. Now, in terms of that big cap tech space, are all big cap tech stocks going to be winners? Um, look, I mean, I think what we've we've got to remember is, is that the U.S. economy is slowing. You know, companies broadly are tightening their belts. Consumer spending is slowing, and this is going to impact the growth of you know of, of all firms. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes we think these big cap tech firms are very defensible and in a different area in a class of their own, perhaps, but they're not going to be immune from, from this. Um, and I think what what we are observing is some of these mega cap tech businesses are becoming more cyclical. And what I mean by that is they're becoming more sensitive to the economic cycle. And that's because they are maturing. Uh, and a really good example of this um, we think is is Apple. So, you know, I think this is a very, very, very loved company. But what is interesting about Apple is that the replacement cycle of Apple's handsets globally has remained really steady at around three years. Now, in comparison, the global handset replacement cycle in the rest of the world outside the US is much higher. So, you know, let me explain that a bit better. Every other mobile phone user replaces their handset every five to six years compared to an iPhone user who replaces their handset every three years. So that's quite interesting. Now, what that means is, is any lengthening of Apple's handset replacement cycle will see a meaningful headwind to the company's profits because Apple generates around two thirds of its gross profit from selling hardware. And the iPhone's going to be a big proportion of this. So what we think that means is Apple's earnings may not actually be as defensive as once thought. You know, we think it is. Um, well, There is greater sensitivity to the consumer spending cycle. Now that's okay. You know, that that's still okay to own that business. Um, but then it comes down to the price that you're paying for that. So you know, Apple is priced at 27 times this year's earnings. Um, you know, with those earnings to forecast uh, with those earnings forecast to fall two percent. So. You know, I think that's a really good example of you know a stock that that has held up, and it is very loved, and it was a winner in the in the last um, cycle. But you know, do you want to pay twenty seven times this year's earnings for a company that is forecast earnings to fall um, and is you know really becoming more, more cyclical or more more sensitive to the economic cycle? Our argument is we think there's better opportunities.
1: That's such a fabulous example, and I feel really old right now because I remember when analysts got really concerned that Apple's replacement cycle had blown out from 18 months to two years. <laughs> <laughs> you used to replace your iPhone every two years because it was so exciting, the new technology that was available on it. Now you're like, I don't really know what the difference is, but
0: I'm probably due for a new phone. Uh, and it's so back- true though, isn't it, Gemma? Because i I mean, look, I am... Uh, you know, it was when I saw these numbers that I really started to think about it because when I do upgrade my phone every three years, and for the for the life of me, I actually don't know why I do that because there's not a meaningful difference for me in the upgrade. So it is it is um, it is definitely food for thought. I think that can change, particularly as consumers. You know, you know, particularly in the developed markets where economic activity is slowing down. You know, we, you touched on inflation before. Um, you know, cash at the at the household level. You know, there's pressures on cash flows. Um, you know, some of these perhaps less necessary spending uh could really bear the brunt of of that um, you know, of higher inflation and, and having to use our you know cash flows on higher mortgages, high cost of food, etc., uh, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, using the iPhone example again for inflation, the time period in which you had an 18-month replacement cycle or a two-year replacement cycle, an iPhone, a new one, cost $600. Now you're talking Mm. $1,200, $1,500, depending on which one you buy. So the inflation's been quite aggressive on iPhones at the same time. Very aggressive when everything else was sort of relatively low inflation during that period. The, uh, The prices were growing very dramatically. You've alluded to a whole lot of stuff, and I love the idea of bringing it all together because as you say, the consumer's under a fair bit of pressure, certainly in Australia, definitely in the UK. Mm. In the Mm. US, there's little bits of data showing increasing Mm. weakness in the consumer. Markets Mm. are starting to price in peak rates and then lower rates, which is extraordinary, Mm. right? That's an enormous shift from where they thought it was going to be a few months ago. Mm. And yet Equity markets, you know, they've come off quite heavily depending on what you're looking at, but they're still holding up relatively well. They're largely flat from the beginning of the year after that incredibly strong January. They've they've tapered a bit. Hmm. Do you think equity markets are sort of back to a bit of buy-the-dip mentality? You know, we know the Fed puts there, they're going to cut rates, and then Hmm. we'll be saved again from our excesses, and everyone will be all right. Do you think they're sort of? Uh, a psychological element at play. So many new investors, and I make this comment regularly, but I think it's worth noting, half of NabTrade's customers have been only investing for the last three years. So they mm-hmm. came to trading and investing during COVID when buying the dip was a brilliant strategy. And mm. the Fed and central banks absolutely saved you from the economic cycle as it would have played out without all of that extraordinary liquidity being pumped in. Do you think people are dissociating from valuations because they think they're going to get saved by a cut in rates?
0: Look, I think you know I think that's a risky <laughs> that's a risky bet to play and actually could be you know it's quite a binary bet to play. Um, look, look, you know without a doubt, recent events, um, you know with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, look at it, it puts the Fed into a a really difficult position here, doesn't it? You know the Fed now needs to balance inflation. Um, and a desire to, to, to bring that inflation down with, you know, with risks in the financial system, you know, very real risks in the financial system. So our, our argument or sort of our belief, you know, coming into this year was that, the, you know, a pause or, or, you know, the Fed pivot was, was coming. Our view was, was that we weren't there yet because of just very tight labour markets um, were keeping inflation in, in, in wages um, and the Fed's really focused on the labour market. Now, arguably, what's happened over the last um, few weeks is that, you know, it probably it brings us closer to 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 the Fed pivot. Now, I think, you know, a pause is quite different from from a pivot, but nevertheless, it does mean that there will be it it will probably give a bit of impetus to some of these um, parts of the market where. That have been very hit by high rates, so I think we absolutely have to keep that in our field of vision. I mean, I, I I do not want to play a guessing game on what the Fed is going to do, but we do have to think about the scenarios, and particularly from managing a portfolio, we have to think about where the risks are in our portfolio. So, absolutely, we have to keep the fact that we're probably, if we're not at the peak in rates, we're probably very close to the peak, and 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 the pause is is probably coming. So that is definitely in our field of vision. But more more broadly if we take a step back our view is, is that the regime is changing and that we are moving to this regime of fiscal activism so you know where policy makers are going to lean more heavily on fiscal stimulus to support economic activity and you know what that means is well we're going to see new winners in in the next market cycle um, you know the prior investment cycle was really focused on software and systems No, we had the shift to e-commerce, digital advertising, streaming, workloads moving to the cloud. So the tech sector has benefited from a very strong tailwind of investment. Now, digitization will absolutely that will continue. But our, you know, what we're saying is this new investment cycles that are emerging are much more centered around decarbonization. Onshoring, you know, infrastructure and and defense spending, and so and also just to touch on a point that you know we we raised earlier, you know, even if the Fed, you know, if we do get some rate cuts, we're not we're not going back to that old environment of of very very low, very predictably low inflation, um, you know, because we do think the world is changing, um, you know, a lot of those trends that really kept inflation very low for a long period of time. Are starting to reverse, you know. So some good examples are the China's low cost labor arbitrage is narrowing. You know, we're moving away from globalization to supply chain onshoring, and that's going to be inflationary. Investment cycles around decarbonisation and climate change are are also going to be inflationary, you know, because it's going to bid up the price for commodities and it's going to bid up the price for pockets of labor. So, so look, you know, yes, inflation will fall, um, but uh, you know, we don't think we're going back to that very, very, very low, low level that was very predictable. And that has implications for rates. Now, okay, bringing it back to the equity market, um, you know, yes, we see these investment trends emerging, but that doesn't mean you want to go out and buy every green stock or every decarbonisation play, because the reality is, is that they're not all good businesses and, and they're not all cheap. And that also holds, you know, that, that rationale also is the same for tech stocks, you know, um, these former darlings. There are businesses that we really like in the tech space because they have a very strong competitive position and their valuations are very attractive relative to their growth profile. So I think in equity markets, you, the answer is you just have to you have to be selective, and we think that's that's your best way of of um, maximizing your returns from investment is is to be selective about what you own. So, um, you know, in the big cap tech space, you know, we we really like Microsoft. It's a stock we've had in the portfolio for a number of years, and we like it because Office three hundred and sixty five bundles various pieces of software together at a price point that can't be replicated by Peers, and so that's what makes Microsoft really hard to disrupt. Um, And then, you know, it has its cloud infrastructure business, Azure. Look, growth rates are slowing in cloud infrastructure, but Microsoft remains really well positioned as the transition to the cloud is driven by the traditional enterprise, and that's the customer group that Microsoft has a really strong lockover. And you know, with Microsoft, we get exposure to AI. So, you know, what are the key ingredients for AI? They are compute power and masses of good quality data to train the model. And Microsoft has both. You know, it knows a lot about our work and and our productivity tools. And it has the largest, you know, one of the largest customer bases to sell AI into um, with almost 400 million Office 365 paid seats. Now, with Microsoft, it's growing earnings at, you know, on our numbers, we see growing earnings at 10% per annum and it's priced at 25 times earnings. So, you know, you can see that growth profile and that valuation compared to, you know, the very other very famous um, big cap tech stock, Apple. You know, Microsoft is on a, um, it's growing faster and on a more attractive valuation. So, you know, that's a good example of just being selective. Um, You know, so in our top 10, I certainly see it as being a really nice collection of um, cyclical businesses with structural growth elements to them. And some, um, you know, really high-quality tech businesses that are on a um, really sensible valuation. You know, Microsoft is one. Um, you know, we also own Meta, which has been in the doghouse, um, but but it's it's certainly coming back. Um, with Meta, we see revenue growing and costs falling, which is you know what you want to, which you know which is what you want to see in every business. Um, but that self-help story with Meta is coming through. At a faster rate than we expected. Um, you know, the company's focus on that company's focus on cutting costs, whether that's staff and CapEx, so we've got the cost line um, really being controlled. And then on the revenue line, you know, Facebook and Instagram's share of time spent in the US has stabilized. You know, I talked about TikTok earlier with Snap. I mean, you know, TikTok did take share from, from Facebook and Instagram. But what we're seeing now is is that Facebook and Instagram, you know, their, their share of eyeballs, you know, is is very steady. And, you know, the company's efforts around building engagement and customer stickiness with the Reels product, which is, you know, Meta's uh, short-form video product, which is obviously what competes with TikTok. Um, You know, the efforts there to to build that customer stickiness are really paying off. Um, Monetization has already started to increase. And the next step will be that it will increase further on that particular product, which is very positive for revenue. And the company is developing you know other products like Click to Messenger ads. So you know again with with Meta we see this company growing at around twenty percent per annum, but it's priced at thirteen times earnings, and that includes the losses from Reality Labs, which is their their the Metaverse. And on top of that, you've got the company buying back stock. So you know we, we you know I mean on that investment thesis, what I what I hopefully what I've shown there is is you know we don't need TikTok to be sold for the the thesis on on Facebook to, to work and, and to make money out of that stock, you know, other holdings, um, you know, other tech holdings we like, Oracle, SAP. So, look, you know, um, I think people, you know, we've seen a big drawdown in tech and, and you're right, you know, um, I think investors see that drawdown and think, okay, um, I'm, I'm going to, you know, the old winners or the old favourites, they're down, I'm going to buy them um, and 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 I'm going to ride ride the next wave. And so, look, yeah, we own Microsoft, we own Meta, we own we own Oracle, but, um, you know, we remain significantly underweight tech and, and even um, mega cap tech because we do think investors really need to look beyond those prior market darlings. You know, look, there are going to be exceptions, but broadly in tech, we do see a shift in competitive dynamics. Um, we think that's accelerating and that is going to weigh on multiples um so yeah I think uh, the next decade will will be very interesting those examples are
1: so interesting and you've your company's made the comment many many times it's sort of time to be contrarian which is very interesting in the context of the kinds of mega trends you alluded to the changing shape of which tech companies are going to continue to be valuable but you talked about onshoring which is a story we've been talking about for a bit uh, i love your note that it's going to fuel inflation because i think it's one of the things that we we try not to face into right it's far more expensive to do things at home than offshore that's why we started offshoring Absolutely. in the first place
0: absolutely yeah.
1: so thoughts on who are going to be the big winners in that space decarbonization as well I know everyone listening in Australia we play decarbonization by buying lithium companies if I look at our <laughs> database that's been their play how do you look at these things as a as a contrarian knowing that there's plenty of other people also looking
0: at these themes and these trends and going this is how I'm going to play them oh uh, look you, you're absolutely right Gemma. And I think that, you know, it is those, I do think investors, um, you know, this next cycle is going to be those emerging investment trends. You know, we've touched on earlier, the decarbonisation, the supply chain onshoring, you know, spending on infrastructure, whether that is traditional infrastructure or tech-based infrastructure. Um, And, uh, you know, so yes, absolutely, we need to be positioned for those trends. But, You know, we certainly in our portfolio, and and I've got some great examples for you, um, but there are ways to play this without paying, you know, what we like to refer to as nosebleed valuations and buying very good quality businesses. Um, So I think we can't ignore the big picture. You know, this is where policymakers are going to focus their fiscal stimulus. And, look, it's already started happening. You know, when you look at what's happening in the US, the US has really been, you know, first mover here, the Inflation Reduction Act. It supports $400 billion worth of investment in energy transition. And Europe is in the process of finalizing its own version. And then, you know, in terms of onshoring, we've got the the US has got its Chips Act, and and that whole um, you know you know um, piece of legislation is designed to encourage um, you know the likes of TSMC, which is Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, and Samsung Electronics to build leading edge chip manufacturing in the West. Now, this is just you know when I'm talking about leading edge chips, these are the most advanced chips. So you know to br- bring that production in the US, because at the moment it's 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 all centered in you know in in Taiwan and and a little bit in in Korea. So these are the investment cycles that we're really excited about, and we've got around thirty percent of the portfolio invested in these. Now, you know, you called out um, Gemma. You know, in Australia, your clients are looking at lithium. Now, I think I'm hoping I'm really hopeful here. I can give some um, give your listeners that some some new and interesting ways to think about decarbonisation. So the way we think about it at Antipodes um, is four buckets. Um, so that's how you know we think about decarbonisation in, in four groups. The first step in decarbonisation is gas. I mean, gas is the key stepping stone en route to net zero because gas has half the emissions of coal per unit of electricity produced. So, you know, Antipodes is a global investment firm, so we own um, French-listed energy business, Total Energies, and we own it because it generates half of its upstream profits from natural gas and it's, you know, most importantly, it's pivoting to decarbonisation. So half of its CapEx is going towards renewables and hydrogen and other transition technologies like biomass. And the other half of its CapEx is going to increasing its tilt to gas. And we can buy that company today on a 15% free cash flow yield. It's a very attractive valuation. So we've got gas as our first bucket. Our second bucket is materials. So I'm going to give you a great alternative to, to lithium. So the material we really like is copper and we own it via a company called Tech Resources. Now, why do we like copper? We like it because EVs require four times the amount of copper to electrify the powertrain and the grid requires 10 times the amount of copper as the grid needs to connect renewables. So why do we add tech? Tech has the fastest growing copper production amongst All the majors and the assets are in Chile, so we feel relatively comfortable investing in that in that jurisdiction. And even more importantly, tech's assets sit very low on the cash cost curve. So that's our second bucket. Our third bucket is utilities. So that's a little bit more obvious. You know, we own utilities that are greeting the grid. And then the fourth bucket is our exposure to, we call them the enablers. So these are the companies that will facilitate a reduction in carbon emissions. So A company that we really like, and it's recently gone into to. uh, We've owned it for a little while, but we've we've been buying it recently, um, and it's gone into our top ten. Is a company called Siemens Energy, and we think this is a great way to get very broad exposure to the energy transition without paying a you know a ridiculous multiple. So, what is Siemens Energy? It is it's the global leader in wind turbines, gas turbines. Um, and grid transmission equipment. So a big winner in this decarbonisation investment cycle. And, you know, general, I was looking like, at yeah, the numbers. Some of these numbers, the investment that, you know, globally we need to make to meet these um, carbon emission targets is just phenomenal. Um, you know, to meet the 2030 um, targets, the annual installation of offshore wind turbines needs to increase seven to eight times. I mean, you know, that's an enormous number. And, you know, one of the reasons we like Siemens Energy is it has 65% share of that offshore wind market. So, you know, when we're talking about offshore wind, these are those very, very, very big wind turbines that are out in the middle of the ocean where winds are stronger and slightly more predictable. You know, so so great Siemens Energy, great way to play, to play that. Um, you know, really, when you think about those numbers, uh, Decarbonisation can't happen without a significant step up in the investment of offshore wind. Then the company also has its gas turbine business, and I've spoken about how you know we see gas fitting in that journey towards net zero. But actually, the opportunity for gas is probably much better than what the market realises, because you know as we know, when it comes to renewables you know the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow when you need it so for every megawatt of renewable energy you actually need at least half a megawatt of reliable backup generation now you know so everyone thinks batteries well the problem with batteries is they need to solve for some pretty difficult issues around scale you know it's a lot of materials so until that is resolved Gas is actually a very viable low carbon option for backup power generation and Siemens Energy's gas turbines can be decarbonized with the co-combustion of hydrogen. And then we have the grid. Again, um, a lot of investment needed in the grid. Um, the numbers are around that investment. annual investment needs to at least double by 2030 because the grid needs to be strengthened and extended to connect and distribute renewables. So, you know, with Simmons Energy, there's, there's really a lot to like about this company. It's going to be a big winner in a low carbon world. It has large market shares in parts of investment where we see it, investment meaningfully increasing. And today we can buy that business on five times, uh, 20, 25 EBITDA. It's a very attractive valuation. So that's how we're thinking about, you know, that, that's a couple of examples there of how we, we're positioning for decarbonization in the portfolio. Now, the other area of investment that you know where we're pretty excited about is um, it is it is the onshoring and it's also connectivity and compute. And a stock we really like, and I touched on it earlier, was TSMC. And we think this stock is a fantastic way to play the onshoring investment cycle and also a great way to play AI uh, and this increasingly connected world that we are moving into. So as I mentioned, TSMC makes those leading-edge chips the semiconductor companies globally. And what we really like about TSMC is that it has a near-monopoly status at the leading edge, so at that very advanced edge. So you've got TSMC, um, Samsung Electronics is a a very small second player, and then that's it. You know, at the leading edge, we've even seen the likes of Intel bow out of the competition because they simply can't keep up. So we love the competitive structure. Then what we really like is that the demand for leading edge chips is increasing across all of their key end markets, you know, whether that is handsets or next generation Wi-Fi or autonomous and electric vehicles or data centers and and AI. So, you know, the way we think about TSMC is that it's it's the arms dealer to all this activity. So all of the chips that are powering the AI revolution. They are manufactured by TSMC. Now we see that company, you know, growing its earnings uh, 15% per annum, and we can buy it today on 12 times earnings. Now, that valuation is incredibly attractive for that growth profile and the quality of that business. And that's because of, of geopolitics. Now, we're not ignoring geopolitics when, when we think about this business. Um, our view is, is that both the US and China. Are dependent on TSMC for these chips. And so to a certain degree, TSMC is somewhat the bargaining chip, <laughs> um, you know, between the US and China. And at 12 times earnings, we think we certainly believe that we have, you know, that 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 the valuation is more than um more than accounting for that geopolitical risk. So in in Antipode's language speak, we do believe that we've got the margin of safety at that valuation and we do think that the market overly focuses on geopolitics for this particular um, business and and is missing the fantastic qualities which, um, you know, which I just spoke to. I love that example. Uh, and I think there are many of us who love that company,
1: but I've never heard it referred to as the arms dealer before. And maybe I will think <laughs> about it in that way from now on. You'd fail any ethical test. So perhaps don't put it out in any of your writing. Um, <laughs> suddenly gets booted out of all the ESG portfolios for being an arms dealer. Um, you've mentioned geopolitical risk, and it's just roared to the forefront of everyone's minds over the last 12, 18 months with the invasion of Ukraine and so on. And it applies clearly not just in Taiwan. Uh, There's so many areas we have to think about that. And I've alluded to the ESG considerations. How do you look at those issues? What do you like and what do you worry about?
0: Yeah, look, um, you're right. You're right, Gemma. I think that we are in pretty... Challenging times. Actually, I feel like I've been saying that to every client for the last three years. But you know, it feels like we are in in a pretty challenging market. And I think what we need to do is, as investors, we we need to bring it back to basics. So, you know, Antipodes is a pragmatic value manager. So, what a traditional value manager often does, um, or will typically do, is just wait to owning low multiple stocks with an expectation of mean reversion. Now. The challenge with investing in that type of way is, um, you know, is that often stocks, you know, what you're missing is structural change in an industry. And I think, you know, the way the world is evolving, we just cannot ignore that disruption is very real. So, you know, what I mean by missing structural change, and that's when a business becomes very cheap because it's being outcompeted or worse, permanently impaired by its competition. And so those companies are cheap for a reason, and they are the classic value traps. And so at Antipity's our view is is that you do not want to own those sorts of businesses no matter how cheap they get or how low that multiple is. So instead, as I said, bringing it back to basics, what kind of businesses do we want to own that stand the test for time? We look for resilient businesses that are cheap relative to their growth profile, And, and that is at the heart of what we're doing when we're putting our portfolio together. So as you can see from some of the stocks that we've discussed today, now, our portfolio contains a collection of stocks across that growth spectrum. Um, you know, we do have exposure to more to those GDP-like growers. You know, uh, when I call that Total Energy it's the gas stock. You know, that is a GDP-plus-like grower, but it's on a very attractive multiple for its growth profile. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you know, we've got a Microsoft, um, which is on a higher multiple, but still cheap relative to its peers and relative to its growth profile. And then we've got a range in the middle um, as well. So I think in this time of uncertainty, um, you know, or you know, whether it's talking about where rates are headed, whether it's talking about inflation, whether it's talking about geopolitics, I think if investors focus on owning resilient businesses that are on attractive valuations relative to their growth profile, you know, they are going to have a portfolio that looks that looks good or, or, or returns that look good over the next three to five years. Now, I've spoken a lot about individual stocks. But if I take a step back and and perhaps I'll just give you a a, a quick view on regionally where we're laying our bets. Um look, we we remain underweight in the US, given what's happening in the US with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. You know, we could see real stresses appear in the financial system. And that has implications for credit creation and it has implications for economic activity. And that isn't priced into US equities today. I mean we think it's actually remarkable that analyst forecasts imply US earnings will be relatively flat compared to last year given everything that is going on and the index at an index level um uh you know the S&P's priced at 18 times earnings now we think earnings at an index level can fall 10 to 15% and that would see US equities priced at more like 21 to 22 times and that's a 15 to 20% premium to historical valuations so we are underweight add the US there. Now, we remain comfortable with an overweight to China. You know, China is reopening. Uh, It's emerging from recession. It is in a very different part of the economic and policy cycle relative to the West. China's loosening while the West is tightening. And China's been in an earnings downgrade cycle for the last few years. And valuations are now down at 11 to 12 times earnings. So, you know, we've been through that downgrade and valuations very attractive. And then Europe, Europe's somewhere in the middle. Um, Europe, Europe was to sale last year due to the energy crisis. So you're much further into that earnings downgrade cycle than the US, but on a much more attractive valuation um, at an index level around 13 times earnings. So, you know, how we're thinking about markets today and positioning our portfolio, um, you know, broadly, it, it does remain relatively defensive in the current environment, um, particularly in our developed market exposure. Now, where we have taken exposure to cyclicals or that more economically sensitive part of the market, it's those cyclicals that will be the beneficiaries of um, these new investment trains, which, you know, and these are the companies which will be tomorrow's structural growth winners. And, you know, I talked through those examples of um, Siemens Energy and, and TSMC. So. You know, look. That's how we're positioning in a broad sense, and and in the current environment. And you know, uh, I hope I've given your listeners, Gemma, um, some some stocks to to go away and and have a think about.
1: I can assure you, people take notes. (laughs) We all see an uptick (laughs) in interest. They love hearing a good stock name. We all love it, Alison. You and your team publish ideas and insights. You have your own podcast.
0: Where can people go to find out more about you and what you're working on? Uh, absolutely. Our website, antipodes.com, has a great insights page where you can you can read about what we're thinking about. Uh, and you can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. And Gemma, thank you for the podcast plug. Look, I have to say, it's actually been quite fun today to be on, on the other side of the microphone for a change. Um, so I do host the Antipodes Good Value podcast. It's, it's available on all major platforms. And we have a new episode, a new episode goes live, um, each month. And it's a mixture of interviews with the Antipodes portfolio managers where they give their views on current events and portfolio positioning, as well as some interviews with companies, CEOs and CFOs. So our latest episode covers life after Silicon Valley Bank, which I think um, is a great listen. Such a good time to be listening to that particular topic.
1: <laughs> Alison Savas from Antipodes, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback from you guys. We love knowing what you want to hear more about, who you want to hear from. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.